We're back in the book of Daniel. We've had a little bit of a break for the last few weeks, but for these next few weeks, we're going to be immersing ourselves in the story of Daniel and his friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Uh, we're looking at how we can sing the Lord's song in a strange land, in strange times. How did these guys retain their hope in God back then? How can we root ourselves in God now, retain our hope in God now in strange times? How do we sing the Lord's song today in our culture? Now, we haven't been in Daniel for a little while, so I thought what we'd do is refresh ourselves uh, with the, the kind of background and the story. So we're going to watch the first three chapters as told to us through the, this amazing Bible Project uh, app. If you haven't got it, I really recommend you, you download it or, or check it out uh, on the website. So uh, these, this is chapters one, two, and three, and we'll be focusing on the themes that come out of, of chapter one, but particularly I'll, I'll dig into chapter three this morning as we think under the theme of avoid. So sit back and uh, enjoy the first three chapters portrayed for us from the Bible Project. The book of Daniel. The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refuse to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted, they're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one.
chapter three, it's just a pretty typical Bible story, isn't it? There's a, there's a king, he makes a great statue, there's a law, people got to come and worship the statue. Uh, and everyone worships apart from our three heroes in the story here, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They, they, don't, they refuse to worship an idol. They're going to worship the one true God. And, and one of the, the king's advisors snitches on them. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown in a furnace. Uh, but they survive. And as a result of their faith in God, uh, God honours them and convicts the king. And the king decrees that th their God is the one true God. Uh, and he is to be worshipped. Yeah. But there's more going on. And what I want to do today is to explore what's going on behind the scenes, underneath the surface. What, what's going on? I mean, if we just look at it again, there's a really powerful king, king of the whole known world, effectively. He's the most powerful man in the world at that time. But that's not enough. He, he's not content with his palaces and his gates and these great towers that he makes. Now, now he's going to erect a great statue of gold, solid gold. Not, not a life-size statue, say six foot. No, this is 90 foot, 90 foot high, nine foot wide. I mean, it's extraordinary. Just think what else he could have invested that money in. And not only that, he, he's like, it's not like it's just there and people can sort of drive past and go, oh look, there's a statue. No, he, he wants everyone not just to observe the statue. See, this, this powerful man, there's more, there's a hunger. He wants people to worship the statue that represents him. So you see verse 2. He summons the satraps, prefects, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other principal officials to come to the dedication. And he tells the herald that he's to summon everyone to worship. Verse 5, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, harp, pipes. He's going the whole nine yards here, isn't he? It's not just a little bell, a little alarm on your phone. No, no, the whole orchestra strikes up and everyone has to worship. piece of gold worship as if a lump of gold was God as if an inanimate metal ore was the creator of the whole universe I mean I mean it's mad these are the wise men of Babylon and they're all going to worship Surely the sensible ones are Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They may be living in a foreign land, foreign gods, foreign customs, but, but when it comes to it, when it comes to worship, we will worship the one true living God. We will sing the Lord's song even though we're in a strange land. I mean, do you know, if you just read it, verse 13, when they disobey the the king's orders to worship this lump of gold. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons them. Furious with rage. We've seen this before with Neb. Do you remember? He kind of slightly overreacts. You remember the slicing to pieces and raising your houses. You do all of that. The slicing of pieces isn't enough. But here, furious with rage. Like, like you're the king of the whole world. 
everyone else is worshipping your statue and these three minions and why don't you just say well just chuck them in the furnace shrug what is it what is it about three little Israelite exiles not worshipping your statue that makes you furious with rage you see when we dig beneath the surface of this story there's something going on isn't there I'll tell you what it is. It's the, the negative effects, the impact on our soul and our spirit when we allow ourselves to be steeped in idolatry. When we worship anything or anyone other than God, when we put anything or anyone as number one in our lives, we've succumbed to idolatry, to worshipping an idol instead of God and it will have an inverse negative impact on our well-being, on our spirit, on our lives. We see it with the overreaction of Nebuchadnezzar. We see it, if we're honest, in our own lives as well. I want to unpack idolatry, what it is, how it plays out in our lives, and how we can counteract idolatry and come back to pure worship of God himself. That's a good question. What is idolatry? Idolatry is misdirected worship. It's when we direct our worship at anything other than God. Idolatry is misdirected worship. In Ecclesiastes, there's a little verse that, that basically tucked away in the, in the middle of chapter 3, and it simply says this, God has set eternity in the hearts of human beings. When God made us in his image, in his likeness, he, he placed in our DNA, if you will, the, the desire, the need to worship him. God has set eternity, a longing for the things of God in our hearts. We, we have, whether we like it or not, we have an appetite, a hunger for God placed in us. The, the question isn't whether we'll worship or not. The question is who or what will we worship? Th think about other appetites. Think, think about just your, your physical appetite for food. Um, just uh, the other day I was I was clearing out the fridge and and uh, that probably doesn't happen as often as it ought to in in the vicarage and and tucked away lodged away in the back of the fridge that had been there for mm, possibly decades was was this look, oh, let me sit there is I mean look, that looks good <laughs> that looks okay it's like a bit of quiche but actually it is um, it's been there for quite some time and there's it's kind of it's got encrusted and it's it's mouldy and actually it, it really, even from here, it just, it stinks. There's no way I'm eating that. But I say that because um, I've, I've just had a, I've just had a lunch and so I'm not actually hungry. What if, what if I hadn't eaten for 24 hours? Would I, would I eat this mouldy quiche? Hmm, probably not. But what if I hadn't eaten for three days? I hadn't eaten anything for three days. What about a week? 
I haven't eaten a thing for a week. I'm, I'm hungry. What about a month? I haven't eaten anything for four whole weeks. I'm starving. I am starving. You see, you see, we create it with a with a hunger, uh, and after a while, that that hunger grows. That if it isn't satisfied, we'll eat anything. And so it is with our spiritual appetite. God has placed a spiritual appetite in our hearts. And if it isn't satisfied in God, we'll seek ultimately to satisfy it in something or someone else. And that's, that's the essence of idolatry. It's when we misdirect the, the spiritual appetite, the spiritual hunger that God has placed in us, when we direct it on something or someone else. And when we come away from, from satisfying ourselves on the richest of God's fare, We'll, we'll eat mouldy stuff and rotten stuff and stuff that makes us sick. We'll worship on things that won't do us any good. And we see that in someone like Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe this Bible story doesn't kind of help because it, it involves a, a statue and, and we maybe think that you know, the kind of fanciful idea that, that idolatry is to do with kind of golden images and carved statues and it, it, it's really to do with sort of primitive peoples and um, you know in our in our sort of sophisticated western world the 21st century we we don't we don't do idols anymore I, idolatry is for bible times or other people it, it doesn't really apply to us but the real question when we come to idolatry is to ask what is being revealed in us. What is it in us that is out of kilter in the much more subtle idols that are all around our culture today? We're, we're living in a, a culture that is in effect like Babylon. It's, it's noisy and cluttered and clamorous. It, it's, uh, it's rebellious against God. And instead of encouraging the people to worship the one true living God, there are siren calls from all over the place to worship all sorts of false gods. Gods of freedom without restraint. Gods of comfort and convenience. Gods around our image and status. And as we seek to worship them, to secure ourselves in them, they, because they're not the life-giving God that we were created to worship, they contort us. They never satisfy us. They twist us into beings that God never intended us to be, to live like. So that we become like Nebuchadnezzar, a powerful man who's fueled with rage at the tiniest little insignificant event. Three people, a whole kingdom, who won't bow down to a lump of gold. See, that's what idols do. They twist us, they contort us, they misshapen us, just as we have misdirected and misshapen our worship. This, this idol, it wasn't the statue. 
That was just the presenting issue. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the whole world, is desperate for approval. You see, not being a God worshipper, he's become so insecure despite all his power and his wealth. Despite all his possessions, the click of his fingers, he has people running for him. And yet, deep down, because of his idolatry, he is so insecure. And to try and satisfy the, to fill the hole, if you like, in his soul, to satisfy that need to be secure, he desperately seeks approval. And so he has this statue built, and then he orders that everyone worships the statue representing him so that he can bolster his own sense of self-esteem as we kind of stand back and, and, and look at the scene isn't it just as onlookers objective onlookers looking in on chapter three isn't it isn't it bizarre i mean in what shadrach meshach and abednego they're just basically operating common sense i'm going to worship a lump of gold i'm going to worship god what's going on around here we've got kings needing the approval of everyone the world's gone mad they would say in Babylon I wonder what they'd say of the world around us today idolatry is all over the place in a, in a culture that has long forgotten God it's not like as G.K. Chesterton if I can paraphrase him said it's not like when Christians stop worshipping God they they end up worshipping nothing. No, when, when people stop worshipping God, they don't worship nothing. They'll worship anything. Our culture today is rife with idols, with people misdirecting their God-placed, God-created ability to worship, not on Him, but on all sorts of things around them. Here's how idolatry plays out in our lives. The psychologists tell us that we basically ask ourselves two questions uh, at a subconscious level on a very regular basis. But the, the, the studies show that maybe as often as once every 15 seconds, at a deeply, deeply subconscious level that we're not even aware of, we ask ourselves this question. Am I safe? Am I okay? Am I in any kind of danger? We, we kind of maybe vaguely become aware of it. You know, if you're going to, a, I don't know, a party or a, somewhere for a new time, there's a room full of people and you, you're just about to enter in. And, and sometimes you, 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 you're, you're kind of alert, scanning. Who's here? Who do I know? Where, where shall I go? Am I wearing the white stuff? All those kind of things are, are sort of, am I okay? And we, we, we quickly sort of seek to reassure ourselves. But we're doing that all the time. In every environment, every someone walks in the room, something changes, something happens, all the time. Am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? Am I safe? So it's a fundamental question. We can't stop ourselves from asking it at a subconscious level. The other question is, am I happy? M makes sense if, if you think about it. A God who's placed eternity, in other words, a longing for him right in our the fibre of our being, then sooner or later we're going to ask, am I being satisfied? Am I fulfilled? Am I at peace? 
was to turn those two questions into statements, is, am I safe? It is, I fear. And am I happy? Is, I want. And, and the drive from fear and the drive from wanting lead to a cluster of idols. Fear tend to, to, tend to cluster around the need to control. So if, if you think about it, I live in a universe, the massively, I'm just one tiny little speck on a planet. It's just one little planet in a, in a vast galaxy and there's galaxy upon galaxy. I mean, it's just so enormous. And if, if God doesn't seem present to me, then how scary is that? Of course, I'll be asking myself all the time, how can I make myself safe? I want to control my environment and control stuff around me. And that will lead me into idolatry. We saw it in Genesis 11 with um, Tower of Babel. They're, they're those guys who are losing their trust in the goodness of God. They fear that he'll scatter them to the four corners of the earth. So they, they, let's hunker down here. Let's, let's, let's make a tower to, to show ourselves just how great we are. We'll, we'll secure ourselves around this tower, this idol. And, and maybe that will create in us a sense that we are safe. And of course, we see God just comes down and he scatters them and confuses their language. Babel, Babelton, this now is the centre of that, that confusion arising from idolatry, misdirected worship. We see, we see the idol of, of desire, of, of want, played out in a myriad of ways in our world today. We, we have so much wealth. We've lost God. We have everything to live with and nothing to live for. And so you see the kind of levels of leisure pursuits, that the toys that we can buy, the gadgets and gizmos, the kind of holidays and hobbies that we can distract ourselves with in an attempt to fill that aching hole that's longing to be ultimately satisfied by God himself. But if we lose sight of God, and lose sight of sometimes of the challenge that he's calling us to step up into, then we'll, we'll look to cushion the challenge with fun, toys, enjoyment. I think about some of the men I've walked alongside and uh, worked alongside in previous iterations. So some of you will know them too, 40, 50, 60 year old boys. Men who've never really grown up because they've just succumbed to the idols of pleasure and fun, just pushing off the, the deeper sense of call and challenge to stand up as men, the kind of men that God has called them to be. In his book, The Dark Night of the Soul, Gerald May talks about idols as attachments. He, he, he describes them as, as trust structures, the things that we set up in our lives uh, in order to ensure that we're okay, that we're safe and that we're happy. These trust structures are emotional programs for happiness, he says, and we need them to be okay. We, we touch in with them all the time. A am I okay? Ha have I got this? Am I here? Am I doing the right thing? You know, all these kind of questions. Am I safe? Am I happy? And we create these, these emotional programs for happiness with attachments to things, to, to patterns and routines and rhythms, to relationships, 
And Bray says, what happens when they're taken from us? What happens when they're removed? That's, that's the sure sign of idolatry infecting our heart. If our anxiety leaps up or our anger flares out, it's a sure sign that we haven't rooted ourselves and directed our worship ultimately at God. We've actually been relying on an idol, an attachment, some kind of inferior program to happiness. Listen to what Bray says. Regardless of how a compulsion appears to us externally, underneath it's always robbing us of our freedom. Idols don't offer the freedom that they initially promise. We act, Bray says, not because we have chosen to, but because we have to. We cling to people, to behaviours and beliefs, not because we love them, but because we're terrified of losing them. This is attachment. Each of us has countless attachments. We're all attached to our daily routines, to our environments, to our relationships and possessions. We're also attached to our religious beliefs to our image of ourselves and others and God. In a spiritual sense, the objects of our attachments become idols. We give them our time, energy and commitment, even when, and often especially when, we're trying to rid ourselves of them. We want to be free, compassionate and happy. But in the face of our attachments, we become clingy, and self-absorbed. This is the root of our troubles, Bray writes. This is the root of the human condition. It's a sure sign for Nebuchadnezzar. His rage spilling out. The most powerful man. These three guys. Verse 17, he, he kind of orders them to be thrown in the furnace. Look at look at that. I mean, like, you've got a furnace. It's going to it's going to just burn people up. Isn't that hot enough? Oh, okay, all right, look, you're in a, you're kind of having a bit of a toddler tantrum here. Fair enough, why don't you double the heat? No, he, he orders that it's got to be seven times hotter. I mean, what's I mean, it's a caricature, isn't it? He's, this guy, he's like the king of the whole world. These three little guys, make the furnace seven times, it's like a toddler, I want it seven times hotter. It's not hot enough. Neb, Neb, okay. I mean, it kills all the guards around it, it's so hot. <laughs> that's, that's what idols do, they, they make caricatures out of us. If, if we could stand back and look, they contort and squeeze us. They, they, don't, they don't do what God does, which is to cause us to expand into his image, to, to, to flourish and grow, to have stature and security and peace and joy. Here's, here's the king throwing a tantrum. So what's the antidote? How do we counter our idols? Often it's in times of loss rather than gain that we discover our attachments and just how valuable they had become to us. It's when they're taken away that we realise we miss them. 
that we thought we needed them. And it's as we learn to come to terms with the loss of an attachment, the loss of an idol, that we can begin to form a deeper attachment to Jesus Christ himself, to the God of gods, the creator of our lives, the one who ultimately and for all eternity satisfies our deepest longing and brings peace to all our fears. God came through for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He was present in the fiery furnace through that being and he rescued them. Not a hair on their head was singed and as a result Nebuchadnezzar and we like to believe elements of that idolatrous culture turn towards God. And as God rescued those guys back then, so God in Christ has rescued us from the tyranny of idols that misshape us and ruin us, that don't satisfy us, that frustrate. Our deepest fear, our deepest fear, again at a psychological level our deepest fear is death itself it's it's it is it is that eternal separation from god the god who's placed eternity in our hearts what could be worse than having that desire and longing eternally what could be worse than having it taken from us forever death is our ultimate fear and jesus christ has come and taken our place in dying for us, he's smashed the power of death. And he reaches through death to hold us, to take us through our death to resurrected life. He has smashed that ultimate fear. As we, as we look to satisfy ourselves in him, we no longer need to fear the greatest fear. And in sending his Holy Spirit, not only does Jesus live with us, but he lives in us. His joy and love and peace, his patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, his character, everything that that delights and brings deep joy and satisfaction. Not only did he live amongst us 2,000 years ago, now by his spirit he lives in us. Just marvel for a moment what it is that God has done to smash the power of idols, to supplant our human attachments, our programs for well-being, with God himself. He satisfied those two deep questions. Uh, am I safe? Am I happy? In the person of Jesus Christ as he lives in us by his spirit. And in this time of crisis and pandemic, when we have been restricted by so much, we've not been able to meet together. We've not been able to, to do the things we'd normally do in this, in this 
season of privation when stuff has been taken away, routines and habits, certain freedoms. What an opportunity for us to explore where our idols lie in our lives and to bring them to the foot of the cross that their power may be smashed in Jesus' victorious death. That his resurrection brings renewed life into our lives. That we renounce our idols and we worship God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.